<coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Psalm 80 again. That's where we were last week. We'll go back there this morning. Psalm 80. Trying technology again. But need an anti glare or something here. Anyway, Psalm 80, 19 verses. Let's go ahead and we can read the psalm again. And then, now I can't read my Bible, but. (laughs) (laughs) It's the light up there that's doing it, I think. But go ahead and turn it on. I'll, I'll be all right somehow. Might have to get into some contortions or something to read it. But anyway, we'll figure something out. All right, Psalm 80. Let's do this this morning. Let's have a word of prayer first. Then we can, we can uh, read the psalm and um, <clears throat> then we'll, we'll go around the room and read it like we normally do then. All right. So, Father, this morning as we look into your word, please help us. Help us, uh, Father, to have uh, a better uh, evaluation and appreciation of you and of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 80. I'll ask Pastor Brinker to start. O shepherd of Israel, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our enemies, or unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. That prepares room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea, and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out. Or out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine. The vineyards which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou hast, that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. So will not we go back from the crooked us, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. All right, Psalm 80, this I had mentioned before a little bit of kind of what brought my attention to the psalm, and mostly it was verse 17 to begin with which is a, a reference to the Messiah there. And anyway, then there's, 
as I started looking at the psalm and, and kind of studying it, there's a number of other things that just kind of grabbed my attention as well. So the, uh, I, I don't think I even mentioned this last week, but I titled this, looking at this psalm, just Turn Us, O God. Really, you see that, that theme uh, repeated throughout this psalm. But um, this psalm is generally considered a psalm of lament. Uh, again, it, it has to do with the condition of God's people that they were in because of sin, and the psalmist is, is looking at it, and he's, he's crying out to God. Um, and you can tell it, it's, it, it's, again, regarded as something that has to do with, with the people, with the nation, rather than just an individual, such as David's confession of sin in, sin in Psalm 51, because here you'll see... Uh, um, just the, the references again to turn us, and, and the, the pronoun us is used repeatedly throughout here, and uh, references to various tribes and so on. But again, it, it seems that it's a, a kind of a, a corporate uh, psalm then instead of just an individual psalm. But uh, this, this uh, psalm has a number of different elements in it, and um, I'll get to one of those in just a second. But we, we talked about Asaph a little bit last week. This psalm, according to the heading, is one that's attributed to Asaph, and we mentioned the, the three that I know of, different men named Asaph in the Old Testament, or in the Bible, they're all in the Old Testament, but um, the one that this psalm is likely uh, written by is one that wrote other psalms, 12 of them as a matter of fact, and uh, he, was, he was a Levite, he was... Um, uh, appointed by King David uh, to be one of the three chief musicians and chief singers in the temple. There are a couple other men that are named as and given that designation as well. But uh, you see, he's one of them, and also different than any of the others that I know of anyway. In 2 Chronicles 29, uh, verse 30, this Asaph is referred to as a seer or a prophet. That's a term that was used, if you remember, of Samuel, Samuel the prophet. In fact, he's probably the only other one that I know that it was regularly uh, used of him. But uh, basically, it, again, it just attributes the fact that Asaph was not only just a, a musician and a singer. Uh, in fact, again, he's, he's called the chief singer, but in other places... You see where, where he and the other men, they, they played instruments as well. So he was probably a well-rounded, if you want to say, musician uh, and, and had a, an important function in the Old Testament temple worship. And, uh, but not only that, but he was a man of the, of the book because he was used by God to write some psalms as well as he's, he's attributed as being a prophet, which fits into, again, my, and I'll, I'll put it that way because the, the, the psalm doesn't clearly say it, but I believe that this psalm is a prophetic psalm in the sense that, because when you think about Asaph, his life, Asaph lived at a time when uh, David and Solomon, a Israel was in a time of prosperity. In fact, it was what you could call the zenith of Israel's history to date. Uh, they have a better day coming, but uh, to date, it was at the highest point of their history under David and Solomon. As far as the nation was together, they were, at least corporately, they were, you know, this changed in Sol later in Solomon's reign, but at least corporately, they were a nation that worshipped Jehovah. 
all right, dedicated to that. They had the temple. Uh, their, their territory was at its greatest that it's ever been, uh, again, as to this point in history anyway. Um, and, and so this was a time that Israel was being blessed by God. Now, surely, uh, obviously, in the midst of the nation, there were, there were perverse people. There were, there were uh, you know, people that didn't follow God and so on. But because of the, the references in this psalm, to the, um, uh, the situation of Israel as being living in a condition of being chastened by God, and it also refers to the fact that it's after their time of this blessing, I, I believe that God was using Asaph to, to write this in a prophetic sense of just giving what I look at as the big picture of Israel's history, all right, that um, that, you know, they were greatly blessed of God. They've been now and presently in our current day, all right, they're still in a condition of, of affliction and decline and so on. Uh, but there's coming a time when they will be restored again. And I think really, again, you see this, in, and that will be in the, in the Messianic kingdom. The Lord Jesus will be the one who does that, and he'll be on his throne, and Israel will be his nation, they will be, you know, that'll be a time when uh, they will experience all the, the blessings and, and all the promises of God will be fulfilled on them at that time. What a wonderful day that's going to be. And, uh, of course, as we mentioned before, I mean, as New Testament believers, we will have a part in that. We're not going to be the focus of that but we'll have a part in that simply because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus um, in that. But, but, uh, but Israel and their Messiah will be the focus uh, during that period of time. But, uh, but this psalm, again, I, it gives us that overview, which in case I forget to mention it later, if you, if you uh, read Romans chapter 10 or 9, 10, and 11, uh, there's a very similar overview given there. Uh, Romans chapter 9 refers to the past of Israel. Romans chapter 10, the present of Israel. And Romans 11 looks forward to the restoration of Israel as well. And so uh, I think in a way it, it parallels uh, those three chapters there as far as, again, just a general scheme uh, of things and so on. Now, when you think about this psalm, we mentioned this, there's three, because it's a psalm, it's a song, Right? Old Testament Israel's songbook, but uh, it was a song, but there's three stanzas, three verses, if you want to say, and then there's a refrain or a chorus, and it's repeated three times in this psalm. Perhaps you noticed it as we read it, but verse 3, turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Down in verse 7, turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. And in the very last verse of the psalm, turn us again. O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now, it's interesting that they grow as well. Each one of them grows um, in length as it goes on, which, of course, the third one is vastly longer than the first two, but, uh, but there is that, that basic structure uh, that we see uh, in this psalm. Now, and, and again, the, the condition of God's people, Israel and Judah, described in this psalm uh, really as a result of their turning from the Lord and His chastening hand upon them. The psalm is a plea for God to intervene and turn them back to Himself, which again is why 
I believe this is a prophetic psalm if it's written by Asaph to man because this hadn't come to fruition yet in his day. Uh, now, there had been, you know, long before that, during the period of the judges, there had been, you know, 12, 13 cycles of them going into sin, God chastening them, and they, they turned back to him, and that repeated cycle. But that's not really what's referenced in, in this psalm, uh, it seems to me. Now, um, there was something here I wanted to... Uh, I like this. In fact, probably two or three times I'm going to reference a quote, quotes by a man named Graham Scroggie. Perhaps somebody's uh, heard of him, but anyway, he has a really good book called uh, A Guide to the Psalms. And anyway, he, he said this in reference to this psalm. He says, the people of Israel are likened to a vine, a fig tree, and an olive tree. Of old, they were the chosen vine. Today, they're the withered fig tree. And in a coming age, they will be the flourishing olive tree. So let's just uh, dig in a little bit here and consider uh, this psalm. Uh, it, this Again, it, it seems to picture a time when Israel and Judah are existing in a condition of having been chastened by the Lord God. And the psalmist is lamenting that fact, but he's also beseeching uh, for intervention from Jehovah. Now, it, 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 it's interesting the way this is worded because it's a plea to the Lord, but it's at the same time a recognition that the Lord's people need to turn to Him. But it's not a plea to the people to turn. It's a plea to the Lord to turn them. Now, keep in mind, all right, God is not, according to the truths of His Word, all right, and according to, you know, the pattern that we see in His Word, God doesn't force people to turn to Him against their will. He gives them opportunity, uh, but God does intervene in ways, and God can bring things about to help, I'll use this word, compel people to do the right thing, all right? Uh, in fact, I think in, in any sense of it, anybody who's saved, that has happened in your life. I mean, you didn't just wake up one day without any intervention of God in your life and say, oh, I think I'm going to get saved today. There's nobody that does that. All right, all of us have to be brought somehow or another, right, to a point of, uh, you know, in, in, in reality, you may not think it was the lowest time in your life, but I mean... Somehow or another, we have to be brought to the point of being at the end of ourselves and realizing there's nowhere else to turn but God. I mean, no matter what the various given circumstances are, somehow or another, that principle's going to be true in a person's life when they get saved. And, 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 and maybe, you know, maybe you've not ever really ever thought about it that way, but again, somehow or another, that's the case. And that's a result of God doing things in your life and in circumstances in your life to get your attention, all right? Now, it's true that God gets the attention of many other people who resist His grace and refuse to be saved because they will not humble themselves before Him and, and all. Um, and I mean, I can remember clearly coming to the point where I had to make a choice that, you know, of humbling myself before God uh, or you know, continuing on in my, in my condition. And I had to come to the point where I realized, okay, the most important thing to, was to be right with God. Didn't matter what else happened, 
what was the fallout of that or whatever, but to be right with God, that was the most important thing, and I couldn't go on living with not with you know taking care of that. And and uh, now I mean that's my specific thoughts. All right, again, that doesn't mean that's the exact thoughts everybody has, but that's my specific thoughts in my situation. But somehow or another, there's there's a like principle that for everybody that's saved. All right, uh, because God is at work in, in people's lives. That's the whole point of it. All right, and the psalmist, I believe, is recognizing that, and he instead of just preaching to the people that they would need to repent, which again, in in the actual sense, as a nation, they were not turned from the Lord at this point. But instead of preaching, you know, focusing on the people's need to repent, he's focusing on God, the desire for God's intervention to help them to turn to cause them to turn so that then they would be in the place where they would be in God's blessings again. That's, that's the, really the gist of this whole thing in this psalm. Now, uh, and again, three, three different kind of parts to this psalm here. So as you think about part one, really the first three verses, um, generally it's a plea for God's help because of the, the situation of their distress. And this is a prayer for the restoration of God's former favor and for him to do what he had done before. Notice the words here, right? It, it begins with, give ear, all right? So it's, it's, it's kind of picturesque, all right? It's like, Lord, please, you know, lend your ear here. And it's not that God's hard of hearing. You know, you think of like Isaiah 59, you know, where God says his hand's not slack, his ear's not dull of hearing, but it's sin that separates us from God. And, and so... He's saying, you know, Lord, give ear, listen to us, please. It's a, it's a plea here, right? And he says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims. Shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up thy strength and come and save us. Again, it's, it's this plea to God to do something so that they can be in the relationship that they were previously to God. Uh, it's interesting the words, uh, the descriptions or, or uh, ways that God is referenced, right? O shepherd of Israel. This is, a, uh, it's, it's not unique in this psalm, but it is a rarely used idea of God's relationship with Israel. But when you think of it in this sense, all right, what's a shepherd do? I mean, a shepherd is the one that cares for and watches over and protects and, and uh, you know, provides for and, and leads. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I believe every word of Scripture is important. And, and this is used here, again, in the sense that this is the desire that the psalmist has, that Israel would be back in the situation that God is, you know, that they're seeing God actively, can, you know, care for. Uh, even even in their like current state in our year, you know, this 21st century we live in right now, Israel's not in a place of God's blessing as a nation. There is the nation of Israel has been reinstated in the world, right? They're they're a nation again, but they're not in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies yet. Uh, that is yet to come, but they're not in that place, and so. The psalmist is desiring that they would, they would be in that place that God is actively uh, working and caring and providing. Now, that doesn't mean God's not watching over, all right? Obviously, God, he, he limits 
what could be done? I mean, think about this. You know, you think of World War II, Adolf Hitler, the, the, the genocide that he tried to, uh, uh, you know, carry out against the Jewish people. And he killed a lot of people. But there were still limits, boundaries that God set and wouldn't let him cross and go to, right? I mean, that, that's kind of, in a lot of ways, that's kind of, you know, hard to understand things because, you know, uh, could God have made the limits less? And yeah, but we don't know all the whys, okay? Uh, and and there's, a, there's a, the, uh, a point of God's relationship with Israel as his chosen people involved in that, as well as God's action involvement in individual lives that's involved in all of that. And we don't know the whole picture. We don't know all the the ins and outs of all of that, and so, but, but God does watch over and care for. That is certainly a fact that we see in the Scripture. But, but I have to move. he says, O shepherd of Israel, thou that lead, and then, then notice, leading Joseph like a flock, all right? And then he changes to thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth, all right? Uh, here, I mean, it's almost a completely different picture of God here. I mean, when you, when you think of the one dwelling between the cherubims, all right? There's probably a couple pictures in the Bible that might come to your mind in this, but this would, this would certainly speak of God's holiness and His majesty, right? Uh, when you think of the one dwelling between the cherubims, I mean, you probably automatically think of the, the tabernacle, the ark, the mercy seat, all right? But, but think of that in that context, all right? That was a place where God's majestic presence was, right? But yet it was a restricted place too. I mean, it was cut off, all right? Uh, there, were, there were elements of that that were visible to everybody, like the, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. If you were outside, you could see that, apparently, but you weren't allowed to go into that tabernacle and look at the mercy seat and see the cherubims there guarding that presence of God. I mean, it was a restricted thing, but it was a place that certainly stood for the holiness of God. And his, again, just his brilliance, his majesty. You think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is, is shown a vision where he sees God sitting on his throne. And there it says, in the temple. Uh, it's interesting. But he's described as, as having cherubim, seraphim around him. And they're there basically just crying out nonstop, 24-7, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I mean... That's what they do. But again, that speaks of the fact that God is holy. And Isaiah's reaction to that was what? Whoa, is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, and, and God then in, in that vision, you know, one of the seraphim comes and takes, it says, a coal from off the altar and puts it on his mouth to ceremonial, you know, picturesquely whatever cleanse his mouth because he was a man of unclean lips. All right? but, but again, the, the scene is the holiness of God, the majesty of God. You think also the other, the other picture I, I see in that is in Revelation 4 and 5, where we're shown a glimpse, in a way, of heaven and God's throne in heaven. And there's seraphim and cherubim, there's, you know, and these special beasts that are there, and that's all they do. They're around God's throne crying, holy, holy, 
holy. I mean, they're, they're there to, to, to constantly proclaim the holiness of God. And maybe in a sense, you could say they're guarding his throne. But I mean, uh, but who's going to approach God's throne, right? Um, but, but again, th- these are the things. He, he's a shepherd of Israel, the, and then the one that dwells between the cherubims. And then notice the last two words of verse uh, 1, shine forth. All right, I mean, just, just shine forth. Let your brilliance be seen, all right, here. And again, these, it's in this, this, this uh, plea for God to intervene on behalf of Israel. And then uh, again, continue before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your strength, come and save us. I talked a little bit about last week about the relationship of those three tribes. I'm not going to mention it again right now, but stir up thy strength. I mean, that's an interesting phrase, you know. Uh, one writer said that it's like, come flex your muscles, maybe is the way we would describe it today. You know, in other words, show, show everybody how strong you are, something, you know, uh, that kind of a thing. And come and save us. And then the, the first uh, chorus, refrain here, turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. All right? So in every repetition of the refrain here, it's, it's turn us. All right? So what he's really after in this psalm is for God to work and to turn them so that they would be back right with God is the idea. But in every one of these, he says, turn us again, O God. So there's a reference to God there, and we'll see that that actually changes in every one of these choruses. But then, and then he says, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Turn back to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Numbers, chapter 6. This is a, an interesting thing here. Number six, um, beginning in verse 22. I mean, this is in a portion here which is just talking about various um, feasts and offerings and so on. It's just, just right previous to this, talked about the Nazarites and this kind of stuff, okay? And then at the end of chapter six, it says this, verse 22... And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying... Now, Aaron was the priest, right? The first high priest. His sons were the priests. One of them would replace him, and then that would just continue down the line, right? But speak to them, saying this, On this wise ye, the priests, shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them... This is the blessing that they're to pronounce on the children of Israel... The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. Now that's an interesting, there's a lot in there, but just you see the connection that in that this this priestly blessing that was to be uh, that was to be a portion of the, the people of Israel, right? When they were in, in the favor of God, when they were living the way that they should, right? The, the connection here that, 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 you know, the Lord bless thee and keep thee and make his face to shine on thee. Do you see the connection with the psalm? 
shine on us? I mean, and the idea of that, and then his countenance, uh, lift up your countenance. I mean, that's, that really seems to me, to put it in our language maybe, that is saying, Lord, please smile upon us. Be pleased with us. That's, that's the desire. And, uh, but, but put that now in the context of our psalm, back in, in Psalm 80, and the repetition of that three times, right, in that chorus, well, how does it start? Turn us, O God. So in other words, if Israel in this psalm and any of us individually who qualify as God's people, right? I mean, if we're going to have God smiling on us, that first necessitates that we turn. That we turn to Him, all right? We'll speak more about that just a bit here as that's repeated down through here, but... um, let me, let me just jump down uh, here, down to the, the second part. Now, beginning in verse 4. Verses 4 through 7 is the second part here, the second stanza. Um, and here, again, it's, it's a lament of Israel's distressful condition, their present condition as is described in this psalm, which, again, I believe is just prophetic from Asaph's day. But this distress, though, is a result of God's anger due to their sin. All right, so, O Lord God of hosts, verse 4, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Notice how God is addressed here. First off, he's addressed as the shepherd of Israel, and then the one dwelling in, you know, in the, between the cherubims, and now he's addressed as, O Lord God of hosts. The idea of God of hosts or Lord of hosts, as it's more commonly seen in the Old Testament, is a it's really a militaristic term. It's, it's the, the term that's used of God as he fought for Israel, as he, he intervened on their behalf when they were in battle and, and various things. But also then it speaks of God's ability to, to judge and to conquer. All right? and, and so he's, he, he's appealing to God in this, in, on these lines here. How long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? So it's like he's, he's visioning God as angry with his people because of their sin. And he's displeased, of course, but he's angry. Now, it doesn't mean that God loses his temper, okay? But he's angry. His anger is a just and purposeful anger because it's directed toward sin. Sin angers God. And that's, by the way, that's a picture that's not often talked about today in Christianity. I mean, everybody knows sin's wrong. I mean, you know, just that general concept. But sin angers God. You remember the, what, 1755? Is that the right? When uh, Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, sinners in the hands of what? An angry God. I mean, that's a, a picture, again, that's, you don't hear that talked about today, but that was used of God to stir a lot of people and bring about First Great Awakening, and, and not just that sermon, but a lot of things going on. But, um, uh, but that picture, God's angry at sin, and He's recognizing that. How long are you going to be angry against the prayer of thy people? The prayer of the people. It's not like they hadn't been doing their religious things and they hadn't been praying. And, you know, sometimes even maybe we, when we're in a time of distress, we pray, 
But is it misguided prayer? Is it misappropriated prayer, so to speak? In other words, there's things we need to get right rather than just begging God to fix this or, you know, whatever. And so uh, he's, he's addressing the Lord on this behalf. And then he says, thou feedest. Notice this is a, an interesting verse here, verse 5. Thou feedest them with the bread of tears and givest them tears to drink in great measure. This is, this is expressing a great uh, time of distress and sorrow. Speaks of the fact that their bread is tears. Their drink is tears. I mean, ev- everything in their life is just, it's causing sorrow. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, it's, it's terrible, obviously. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among us. I, you know, every time I think about that kind of context, Israel being a strife to their neighbors, of course, my mind goes back to Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. And, and you know, I mean, all, a lot of those things are a result of those con- you know, consequences of that action and sin. And be, you think about this. I mean, Israel, for most of its history, has lived in uh, a bad relationship with its neighbors. And interestingly enough, most of its neighbors are their relatives. Either through like Ishmael and his, his descendants or Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, his descendants. I mean, they're related to Israel in that, you know, you go back far enough. Of course, you go back far enough, we're all related. But I mean, they're related to them, but yet they would love to kill each other. You know, wipe each other out. But anyway, uh, then verse 7, let me just uh, go on here. They're a a mockery among their their neighbors is the idea. And then turn us again, verse 7, O God of hosts. Notice how this changes. The refrain's the same except God's name is expanded, if you want to say here, the way God's addressed. Turn us again, O God of hosts. And cause thy face, uh, yeah, cause thy face to shine, shine, and we shall be saved. I almost said sign and shaved, but anyway, <laughs> cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. All right. So again, the same uh, appeal here. Turn us. All right. But here he says, "O God of hosts." But first one, it was just "O God." Now it's "O God of hosts," which is an interesting combination here. And then cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. And then this goes into the, uh, the third part here. All right. Uh, again, turn us. You know, they needed to be turned. They needed to get right in order to be in God's favor. Again, it's repeated these three times here. But uh, this uh, third, third part here now, you see something different. Uh, you see a picture here. An analogy is the idea here, a metaphor maybe. Uh, of a vine and a vineyard, and of course Israel is is the one pictured by that, and God would be the uh, the husbandman who's taking care of that vine. But notice in verse eight, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt; thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and it did, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. And the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Um, And then verse 12 changes then. You know, why have you broken this down? Why have you done this? But you see this 
Again, this picture, and it, this isn't the only time in the Old Testament that Israel's likened to a vine, Isaiah in a vineyard. Isaiah does the same thing in, in Isaiah 5, I think it is. Um, the Lord Jesus even uses a similar uh, picture in the New Testament of his relationship with his people, all right, uh, now. But uh, this vine, all right, so this, this analogy of the vine in the vineyards used to depict how God had delivered how he had taken care of, how he had raised up and blessed Israel, the seed of Jacob, in days gone by, and then, due to their rebellion, had to chasten them. All right, so there's three steps that you see in these verses. Verses 8 through 11, you can see their prosperity pictured here. Verses 12 through 13, you can see their adversity spoken of, which is what the whole psalm is kind of dealing with there in prophetic sense. When Asaph wrote it, they're present condition of adversity, and then you see in verses 14 through 19 their recovery. So in the few minutes we got, let's see what we can do here, but you see their prosperity. Again, this picture of the vine, God had greatly blessed Israel. They had experienced their zenith of power during David and Solomon's reign. In fact, even referenced here is, you see directly, and in this order, the exodus, the conquest of Canaan, their increase and their expansion. In fact, during, again, David and Solomon's days, Israel, the, the land they controlled anyway, was from what God had talked about, from basically what you'd say Syria in the north to Egypt in the south, the, trying to do it from your direction, the, the Mediterranean Sea on the, the west and the Euphrates River on the east. They controlled all of that land. And uh, in fact, you remember way back later, later down the road in Ezra and Nehemiah's time when kings uh, were, were looking into things and they searched the records and they saw that this, this land, there was a great kingdom who ruled all this land and that, remember? I mean, they were a, they were a world superpower really at that point. But that changed because of their sin. It wasn't a, a you know, a if you want to say an instantaneous destruction, but it was incremental, but it was sure, and God was giving them, of course, space and, and so on. But you see their prosperity referred to in verses 8 through 11 with this, with this vine that God had taken personally and planted and cared for and let it increase and all this. Now, verse 12, why hast thou then broken down her hedges and so on? So you see, again, in verses 12 through 13, you see their adversity. In contrast to their great blessing, we now see their great plight. The vine, the vineyard was broken down. It was plucked. It was wasted. It was devoured by God, man, and beast are all referred to in here. And again, we don't have time to to get into any more of that. Verses 14 through 19, you can see the recovery. Uh, in other words, and this is, this is going to happen one day, all right? But notice verse 14, uh, and, uh, uh, return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. That again is speaking of Israel. And again, talking about that analogy of the vine and so on. And then verse 17, let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. That's a reference to the Messiah. 
to the Lord Jesus. And he is the one, by the way, that's going to bring about that recovery. He's the one that's going to, that God is going to use. That's the point here. God is, is going to use him to bring about this recovery, this restoration of the people of Israel. Now, let me just mention this. We're about out of time. But notice verse 14. This, this is kind of striking here. Notice how it's worded. It says, return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Now, at least three times, and then in the picture of it, more than that, but you see three times at least, the prayer to God is for God to turn them, right? Turn us, O God, turn us, O God of hosts, turn us, O Lord God of hosts, as in verse 19, turn us again. But here in verse 14, the psalmist is asking God to turn. He says, return, but it's the idea of turn again, all right? Same word as, as used of them down here. Now, it's not that God had to repent and, and of his wrongdoing in that, but the interesting thing here, in fact, let me just read it again, a quote. Uh, he can say it better than I can, I can right now. But he said, Scroggy says this, but by the Lord's return... We are turned, and when we turn, the Lord returns. There are two sides of one truth. God will come forward when we acknowledge that we have gone back. It's very similar to the principles in James chapter 4. Uh, draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh unto you. Uh, you know, re- resist the devil, he'll flee from you, but draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. And uh, this, you know... Turn us, and then just the last verse here again. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Again, the third chorus here, repeated, but notice again. Turn us again, then O Lord God of hosts. Every time God's name, the reference to God in this plea is expanded, right? And he's... But then the rest of it's the same, cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. And again, uh, well, let me just read what Scroggy says here. Again, it's good. All right, he says, notice how the refrain grows. Then he asks this question, is your God becoming more to you every day? Let us think on our ways and turn. Is God getting bigger in your sight? And, you know... As we grow closer to Him, we see more of God. We see Him more for who He is. I, you know, uh, we, we grow in that, but we grow closer to Him as well. But that's not going to happen if we refuse to turn when we need to. And there, there's a lot, of, a lot of good things in this psalm, and we're able just to touch on it here this morning. But, uh, but this is... This is uh, it's a good psalm. It's, there's a lot of uh, principles here, uh, again, that are good for us. But God will restore Israel one day. It's going to happen. And the Bible makes a lot of that in reality. I, I don't see how covenant theologians and so on can go in, in on their thing, you know, that we've, you know, Israel's gone, we've taken their place, all this stuff. But uh, God's going to restore Israel as a people, as a nation, and uh, he's going to work in and through them in a mighty way in this world yet to come. But that'll be, of course, through the Lord Jesus. After he returns to this earth, he sets up that kingdom, and Israel will be his, his people again. But principles here again, just like they needed to turn to God for God to come back to them, so to speak, same thing with us. 
If we're going to enjoy closeness to God, we can't keep Him. We've got to turn. We've got to draw nigh to Him. We've got to acknowledge our backwardness, if you want to say, and, uh, and so on, for Him to draw nigh to us. Let's, let's uh, pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this psalm, and just help us. Help us to draw, uh, to turn, be willing to turn from our error, from our sin, from our wickedness and selfishness and pride and uh, seek to be close to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.